Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable businesses and communities. This is your host, Mike Hancox, and today we continue our series of podcasts on urban resilience in partnership with our friends at Island Press. Island Press is the world's leading publisher of books on the environment, and if you want to learn more about Island Press or their Urban Resilience Project, go to www.islandpress.org backslash capital U, capital R, capital P. Our topic today is the urban heat island effect and cooling centers. Our guest is Cynthia Herrera, the environmental policy and advocacy coordinator at the Harlem-based We Act for Environmental Justice, one of the nation's oldest and most respected EJ organizations. Prior to working at We Act, Cynthia served as a NASA climate change research fellow using new technology to enhance understandings of urban climates and better inform policymakers. Cynthia is a returned Peace Corps volunteer and holds an MS in sustainability management from Columbia University. Hey, Cynthia, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mike. So, Cynthia, the irony of us trying to do a podcast about the urban heat island effect is that we've had a little trouble scheduling this podcast, recording this podcast, because you personally have been a victim. Can you uh, share a little bit about your personal experience with the heat in New York City just recently? Yeah, we were uh, set to record this interview back in August, late August. It was actually the 28th of August, and it was the peak of heat here in New York City. We had, it was our third heat wave, and I had to postpone our, our interview. So the day before the interview, we had a community sort of gathering at a community member's house, and another co-worker and I were outdoors in sort of a canopy shaded area. We were having dinner. We were talking about this global climate action summit that was happening on the West Coast, and we were all traveling there. And as we were doing that, we were just really uncomfortable, but we didn't know what it was, what it was related to, and just mindful that we are not sort of the demographic that we think of as being vulnerable to the heat extremes typically. And so we're both in our 30, mid-30s and have no pre-existing health conditions. But my coworker was really lethargic and just had to leave early. He wasn't feeling well. And I stayed a little longer, but I had sort of like rumbling in my stomach and, you know, I was, it was heated. Uh, I, was, I had a fan on me and walking from one, just from the office to a couple blocks down to where our member lived, just did it for me. So the next day I was sick. I had nausea and just really didn't know where to pinpoint what the issue was. We realized that the temperatures were pretty high. Uh, Historically, that average day was about 81 degrees and it was 94 degrees. 
And so anyhow, it was just a grueling day. And the irony that <laughs> I was talking about seniors and young children who are exposed to these sort of issues, but I was definitely a victim of heat extremes. Yeah, I think I think that story really kind of captures how the heat island effect is so kind of, um, I don't know if the right word is innocuous, it, it creeps up on you, right? So you're a healthy young person, relatively fit, and even you weren't able to really tolerate the excessive amount of heat your body was dealing with. And as you said, as you suggested, if you were a young, you know, a baby, infant, old person had some kind of chronic health conditions, it becomes that much worse. So let's share with folks a little bit. We're glad that you're feeling better. Let's share with folks a little bit. Like, so what is the urban heat island effect? Why is it that people living in urban areas are exposed to more heat than folks who are living in more suburban or rural areas? So let's imagine that um, we're in the city center with lots of high-rise buildings and we have taken away all of the trees to make room for, you know, these big structures. And we have a lot of cars going through because it's a busy city. So a lot of idling cars, they're turned on, they're waiting for a light. That's heating up our streets. We have streets made out of concrete and sidewalks made out of concrete, asphalt streets. We have black tar roofs and with a lot of buildings in one densely populated area with many people coming into work, but also many people living in one space, it's, it's all accumulating heat, not to mention during the day when um, solar radiation is seeping through our neighborhoods, all of these black surfaces are absorbing that heat and they're keeping it inside the buildings. So they're making the buildings warmer, which means we need air conditioners to cool them. And those air conditioners are putting in more pressure to our energy grid, but also are creating more heat. And so population, buildings, cars, air conditioning, and solar radiation, all of those are contributing factors. So within this bubble in a city, if it's a warm day, let's say this 94 degree day, it is actually about seven to 10 degrees warmer just because of all of these added sort of pressures to our built environment. We don't have a lot of green infrastructure to offset it. And so this, as as we, I was in Las Vegas a few months ago, and I know it's a dry heat, but it was 114 degrees in Las Vegas, the, one of the days I was there. And it, it was hot and the heat was radiating from everywhere. It's also very clear that this problem is going to get worse because we have more people living in urban areas. We have more built environment, but also because of climate change, we are having more extreme heat days, right? So I saw an article, I think in the New York Times, that talked about the number of days by 20, I think it was by 2050, the number of days around the country where temperatures would exceed 100 degrees. So I think when people talk about climate change, we talk about like average temperature changes. And really it's it's at the extremes that are the issue, right? The number of days that get excessively hot. And then you string a couple of those days together and it causes significant public health issues. Is that correct? Absolutely. We tracked uh, this summer just because we were curious as to how many heat advisories we would get. We have this cool application called Notify New York City or Notify NYC, and you can opt in to get text messages 
and they sort of, the city sends you, the Office of Emergency Management sends you notices when either there's extreme weather events or there's air quality issues or heat advisory. So in just the month of June, July, and August, we had 51 weather advisories and out of those 51 weather advisories, we had 19 air quality advisories. So there was a high index, meaning the air that we were breathing wasn't the best. And they asked folks to stay indoors because it was really an issue. So we had a total of 30 days of 90 degree plus weather. And about 11 of those days were really intense where they were both heat and air quality advisories, they ask folks to stay indoors for a large part of the day. And so there's, there are certain populations that are more affected by this, people who have chronic health conditions, people with asthma, older folks, young children. But it's also people of lower income or less, particularly less access to air conditioning. It has a significant impact on them because those folks have less opportunities to cool off. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, it is. And what we found out here in New York City specifically is that most folks have access to an air conditioner, like about 90%. So like they have either an air conditioner at home or someone's given it to them. They have it and it's available. The problem is an economic problem is, do I have money to pay for the powering of that air conditioner? So if it's a really hot day and I'm retired and I live by myself and indoors, I'm going to spend about eight to 10 hours. I need to have this air conditioner running for that amount of time. So do I have enough disposable income to pay for that? And about 72% of households holds here in the city, we've realized that our low to moderate income folks vulnerable to heat extremes, they have this cost burden where they they can't pay for it. And so that's when we it becomes an issue. There's two things I, I guess that cities can do, right? One is cooling off the people and two is trying to cool off the city. So let's let's try let's talk about the work that you folks are doing and cooling centers and the efforts that are being made to help people stay cool under these extreme conditions? We're sort of following the following pursuit as to what the city's done. And compared to other cities, I think it's pretty neat that we've developed this cooling center model where sort of typical public spaces are then sort of used for larger amounts of folks. And when the heat index is sort of in a dangerous high level, New York City opens cooling centers in air-conditioned facilities. So that's like public libraries, community centers, senior centers, public housing facilities. And it's just another option for folks to find relief during hot days. And they have two ways to find out where the cooling centers are. If you you know your neighborhood, you know where your public library is or your community center. So that's not an issue. But folks who want to find something if they're traveling and are outside of their neighborhood, they can text or have a place a phone call. And based on your zip code, you can get, you know, a listing of a couple of centers nearby. So these are places you can go, you can go sit down, you can hang out for a little bit and, and cool off. What kind of, you know, are they available 24 hours a day? Are they available just for a, a few limited hours a day? How does that work? Yeah, that's a good question. So 
typically these public centers are have a standard time of operations, usually nine to five during these like warm days, the city opens them up for extended hours. So they go in into 7 p.m., 8 p.m., but no, they're not available 24 hours. And also they're not available outside of, of the typical working hours during the weekend. So I think it's to say that there's still a lot of learning that we can do. And one other thing that I didn't mention was when the city states that there's an official heat wave, cooling centers and the listings online become available. The problem with vulnerable populations and for us as an environmental justice organization, we need to have permanent cooling centers that people can rely on and know where to go. And we also need them to be open regardless of whether it's an official heat wave or not. As I mentioned before, we had 51 weather advisories and we had 19 air quality sort of issues where people, where the mayor said, hey, it's not safe to be outside. And so if people don't have access to an air conditioned space, they shouldn't be outdoors. If that's the case, then we should have cooling centers open as an option. And how do you find, are folks utilizing the cooling centers? Is there any effort to measure how effective this system is? So no, we don't have a way to monitor them. But this summer we said, hey, there needs to be more visibility with where they are. And although they're typically used as a public library and there's things to do there, books and and computers and stuff. Folks don't know that they're also doubling as a cooling center. So we sort of as a rapid response approach created this, these like signs that were very simple to read and accessible in both English and Spanish. And we just went and plastered them all through our Northern Manhattan community and all of the places that we learned were acting cooling centers. So that was just a way to increase visibility. But when we went to talk to folks that were working in these public facilities, they said it was hard to track how many folks were there because of a heat wave or if it was because they were just already going to go to the library. So that's still something that needs to be measured in terms of how how much it's being used. But we do know from our catchment area, northern Manhattan, we have about 650,000 residents. And for 650,000 residents, we have only 42 public cooling centers that are available. So if you think about the proportion, it seems like there needs to be an increase in amount of, of spaces that are either close by to vulnerable populations, especially public housing and senior centers. Yeah. And I think that that's one of the things you said earlier was that you know 90% plus of residents in New York City have access to air conditioning. And that seems like a great number. And like, even if it's 95%, it's still, you know, five or 10% of you know, New York City's population is roughly 10 million people, right? So you're talking 500,000 or a million people who just don't have access. I mean, at 95%, it would be 500,000 people. And in your area of Northern Manhattan, like, let's just say that I think probably Northern Manhattan might be lower, have a lower percentage. I mean, there might be more people there who don't have access than other parts of New York City. But even if it is 90%, that's 65,000 people who don't have access 
to air conditioning during days that feel like they're 100, 105 and they don't have access to the cooling centers on, on evenings and weekends, right? So it seems like it's a pretty significant problem that probably needs more attention. Absolutely. And you know what I found out just by feeling like I was vulnerable to the heat was that in urban areas, we have to walk everywhere. Most folks use public transit and it's a walkable city. So we walk from our office building to the train station or to the bus station to grab groceries, to do our laundry. And that's, I think, what sets the difference between people who live in cities and are more exposed to heat than folks in suburban areas. Because even we're talking about urban heat, so it's about 10 degrees warmer in a city center versus in a suburban area. But also folks have access to vehicles. So if it's a hot day, you go from your air-conditioned home to your air conditioned vehicle. And then you go to, you know, you park your car and you go to the grocery store and then the grocery store is air conditioned. And so there's just a small gap there of you having to walk from each place. But for us here, we have to do it all on the streets during that hot day. So I think what made me feel a little uneasy was leaving an air conditioned building. I was there all day and I walked outside for a few blocks and it felt the stale air and just the the heat made me feel dizzy right off the bat within the first few minutes that I was walking. So that was pretty interesting. And I, this last heat wave was really rough. And the fact that not only did I feel I had nausea, but my coworker had to leave early too. That's, uh, I've never seen that. So where can folks learn more about the urban heat island effect and cooling centers and the work that you're doing at WEACT? Yep. So you can learn more on our website. We are on www.weact.org. We're on social media. And if you want to learn more about New York City cooling centers, you can go to their website, newyorkcity.gov. They have Beat the Heat and they give some more information as to how um, the city's preparing and adapting. Yeah. So let's let's talk about that for a, for a minute. I'd like to just let go upstream and talk about what cities, particularly New York City, is doing to... We talked about efforts to cool the people and it seems like there's a lot more work that needs to be done there, but going upstream and how do we cool the city? How do we make reduce that 10% difference in cities. Yeah, absolutely. So the biggest thing I think for us uh, city dwellers is that there's not enough trees and tree canopy space on our neighborhood blocks. And what we notice is that although we see temperatures on our phone and it says it's, you know, 84 degrees, my neighborhood, my neighborhood block could be a lot warmer not only because of the urban heat island effect, but because we don't have any green infrastructure. So the city is has this aggressive plan in place, and it's an adaptation plan. It's called One NYC. They just came out with a progress report, which is pretty interesting. They have they're aggressively tackling vulnerable communities and adding a lot of um, green infrastructure, so more trees and a series of trees on each block. And that also helps not only lower temperatures, but improve the air quality. We also have, this is a popular New York City, white roofs, which are solar reflective coating that is added to a rooftop. So they become white, they reflect 
more of the solar radiation back into the atmosphere, which means the building is not getting so warmed up. And that's a big strategy that the cities adopted, but as well as other sort of nonprofits in the in the community. Yeah. So just so folks understand, obviously the tree cover prevents the sun radiation from actually hitting the pavement and absorbing into the pavement, provides people with shade, and as you suggested, also helps clean the air. And then you're talking about the roofs, the white reflective roofs. You know, there's kind of a range of other things people are doing, kind of green roofs where they're doing more planting on top of roofs. I wonder if the city is, has incorporated anything into its building code where buildings have to account for and calculate their impact on the heat island effect, how much they're absorbing heat, how much cooling load they're required for the building, and those kind of things. Do you have any sense of whether the city is, has started to adopt building codes to address this issue? I don't know about code specifically. I know the adaptation is things that are like practical and sort of low cost. For example, the white roofs can be done in a couple hours and they also save energy for folks so you don't have to power your air conditioner to cool, you know, your your home. The green roofs are also a big thing, but they're costly, they're expensive. So practical solutions have been white roofs in sort of hot spots like central Harlem, where we have less uh, tree coverage. And in terms of codes that the city's adopted, I just know that there's the lead certification for buildings. And that's not something that's been adopted, but it's leadership and energy and environmental design. So it's sort of like a green building certificate that buildings can sort of score and, and, and get ranked and they show their plaque outside. And I think they get some incentives if they're close to public transit, if they have energy efficiency measures. And so I think that's sort of where we're transitioning as a big metropolis in terms of like, how are we doing things, not just at the adaptation How are we incentivizing buildings to go green? How are we incentivizing landlords to make these changes for a lot of old buildings here? Cynthia, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. And and thank you for the work that you do. There's a lot of vulnerable people out there who don't have the opportunity to kind of fend for themselves. And I think that the work that you're doing to help people who don't have access to stay cool is so important. It's it's so important from their health perspective, but just the quality of life issues related to that, right? So so again, thank you for the work that you do and, and thanks for being a guest on the show. Thank you. And I just wanted to say that with our organization for the past 30 years, we've We've worked to build healthy communities. Our goal is to ensure that people of color and or low income are participating meaningfully in the creation of sound and fair environmental health and protection policies. So we want to make sure that we continue to advocate for people of color and or low income and make sure that they are at the decision making table when sort of these adaptation issues and and sort of solutions are addressed because people that have lived in these neighborhoods for decades and generations know firsthand how their neighborhood has changed as a result of climate change and and its impacts. Fantastic. Thank you for mentioning that. Vernice Miller-Travis, who is a dear friend and a colleague and one of the co-hosts of this podcast, was one of the co-founders of WEACT. So she'll be very happy that you... um, reminded everybody of the important work that we act does and will continue to do for many years I, I, this how we deal with and address uh, the impacts of climate change and how we ensure the fact that 
that certain populations, particularly populations of color and low-income communities, don't bear a crazy disproportionate brunt of this problem is important both from, you know, just a, a human moral perspective, but also important in terms of our ability to confront climate change, right? If if we don't see and don't understand the problems that people are facing and for if the decision makers are hanging out in nice, cool, air-conditioned buildings and living out in the country on the weekends, their understanding of the problem and their willingness to act is probably twisted and distorted. So I think it's just so important the work that you do. And, and again, thank you for that. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. We look forward to seeing you next time on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Infinite Earth Radio and Twitter by following at Infinite Earth Radio.